Hi, and welcome to episode four of the Change Wizard podcast, Personal Stories and Myths. It was Miguel Ruiz, author of The Four Agreements, who asked us to consider the unconscious agreements we make with ourselves and others as to who we are and how we should behave. In this episode, we will explore the stories we tell about ourselves, to ourselves and others. Beginnings, middles and endings. These three things exist in the realms of story and of journey. On a very personal level, it's not only our life that can be seen as a story or a journey. We can consider our relationships, our education, our career as having beginnings, middles and ends. Now gladly, some of those endings we know to be part of our story, our journey are a long way off, but they exist somewhere in an uncertain future. We may recognise the theme, the plot and even the characters as we experience each page of our own story, but then again, we may not. We may have an idea of the bigger picture, the arc within our personal journeys, but then again, we may not. Whatever our perspective of the journey that is our life, we can be reassured that just like those adventures we read about in books or see in movies, there will be surprises and challenges along the way. Yet we can think of each and every day as a new journey, each and every deed, each and every thought as a new journey. And journeys are truly transformational if you have the willingness and desire to engage fully in them, not as an observer, but as an active participant, as an experiencer of that journey. As Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, writer and lecturer said, the big question is whether you're going to be able to say a hearty yes to your own adventure. So, Life is about the journey. Yes, uh, well, yes and no. The oft-quoted phrase, it's about the journey, not the destination, is at first sight a positive one. And of course, it may well be the piece of rhetoric we need to hang on to when life gives us a hard time. Or, as we read in some spiritual books, lessons we need to learn, to experience and grow from. However, to deny the importance of a destination is perhaps to promote an attitude of anything goes or aimless meandering. In recognising the nature and purpose of the journey, there needs to be a sense that the journey is worth undertaking, that it does have some kind of motivating goal. Furthermore, it could be suggested that without an understanding of some form of destination, there is not only an abdication of choice, but also the denial of responsibility for the steps that are being taken. You may, at some point on your journey, sit under a newly discovered banyan tree to mindfully reflect on your experience, but Where have you come from? What motivated you to move from the previous banyan tree to this one? Are you simply giving over to the whim of the moment in the now and imagining that you are a free-spirited individual moved to follow rainbows and clouds? Or are you mindfully choosing to follow the clouds and sit under rainbows because you desire the experience? If you sit long enough, you will realise that we are motivated by something. There was a destination or a goal in mind. That destination may have been about finding a more resonant banyan tree, or it may be that you were guided by some knowing that you needed to move on. 
The knowing was the motivator, the idea of the destination which would yield more profound experiences and learning. Now, it could be argued that the spiritual tourist who moves from experience to experience is simply a self-serving hedonist, whereas the spiritual quester or adventurer understands the link between some ideas of destination and the nature of the journey itself. The bridge between the material, physical and the spiritual, esoteric, is the experience of the journey. Enlightenment, awareness, is the destination. Life is a staring contest with death, so said my partner's teenage son once in a profound moment of reflection. As human beings, we are mortal, and from our physical birth, we are on a journey towards a physical death. All religions and spiritual paths have something to say about the ending of life's journey. Depending on your spiritual frame of reference, death can be another chapter in the book of the soul, another book and another story entirely, or simply the end. Death is life's shadowy companion and can be, be recognised as something to fear, something to look forward to, the shedding of the limitations of the body, for example, or something to become friends with. Every day is a journey, and the journey itself is home. Matsubasho. Just a side note here, once we define one thing, we actually define the other things that are opposite to it. So if I decide define life, then anything that is not life must be death. If I define light, then by definition I am expecting or anticipating or really defining shadow. More about that later. So another question. On this journey of ours, who or what is actually making the journey. At one level, it seems obvious that it is I or the me or the self that undertakes the quest. The question driving the journey is often phrased as, who am I? In the opinion of some, such a question implies that there must be a plausible answer, that our being is fixed. Actually, they are temporary and impermanent. You are not the same person you were five years ago, five months ago, five weeks ago, five days ago, five hours ago, five minutes ago, five seconds ago. Yet it is the sense of your own individuality which seeks to define the changes that you, as a permanent construct, has undergone. In 1986, the philosopher Daniel Dennett published an essay which suggested that one way to think about self is to liken it to the construct used in physics that we know as the centre of gravity. The centre of gravity does not correspond to anything tangible. The centre of a gravity in a hoop is actually thin air. Uh, but he wrote, Let me remind you how robust and familiar the idea of a centre of gravity is. Consider a chair. Like all other physical objects, it has a centre of gravity. If you start tipping it, you can tell more or less accurately whether it should start to fall over or fall back in the place you let go of it. We're quite good at making predictions involving centres of gravity and devising explanations about when and why things fall over. Place a book on a chair, it too has a centre of gravity. If you start to push it over the edge, we know at some point it will fall. It will fall when its centre of gravity is no longer directly over a point of its supporting base, in this case the chair seat. Notice that the statement is itself tautological. The key, t key terms in it are all interdefinable, and yet it can also figure in explanations that appear to be causal explanations of some sort. We ask, 
Why doesn't that lamp tip over? Replied, because its center of gravity is so low. It's a causal explanation. It can compete with explanations that are clearly causal, such as because it's nailed to the table and because it's supported by wires. In a similar way, selves, myself, yourself, are physically not detectable. Instead, they're a kind of fiction, like the center of gravity, which is a convenient way of solving physics problems, although they need not correspond to anything tangible. People constantly tell themselves stories to make sense of the world, and they feature in the stories as a character, and that is a convenient but fictional character of the self. We all too frequently define ourselves by our roles, mother, father, parent, lover, partner, and since the nature of these roles evolve, the I that is brought to each changes, evolves, matures, and develops. To another person, the self of one individual is recognized in the behavior, deeds, words, and actions of that individual. The human being is often conceived as being in the illusion of individual existence, separateness from all other aspects of creation. This sense of doership or sense of individual existence is that part which believes it is the human being and believes it must fight for itself in a world which is ultimately unaware and unconscious of its own true nature. The ego is often associated with mind and a sense of time, which compulsively thinks in order to be assured of its future existence rather than simply knowing its own self and the present. Thus, the spiritual goal of many traditions, that which is the end of the journey, is the dissolving of the ego, allowing self-knowledge of one's own true nature to become experienced and enacted in the world. This is variously known as enlightenment, nirvana, presence, and the here and now. The challenge is that even a sense of no-self is defined against the benchmark of there being a self, so the illusion persists. As the philosopher Hume said in 1740, we are never intimately conscious of anything but a particular perception. Man is a bundle or collection of different perceptions which succeed one another with an inconceivable rapidity and are in perpetual flux and movement. The Buddha addressed ideas about the permanence of self whilst at the same time promoting a middle way, so that in the principle of anatta, the Pali word for no self, there is neither a permanent self nor complete annihilation of the person at death. There is only one arising and ceasing of causality related phenomena. This is because that is, this is not because that is not. This ceases to be because that ceases to be. In a classic Buddhist metaphor, it is suggested that we consider three sticks leaning against each other. They stand mutually supportive, each one allowing the other to stand as a unit. We move one of one stick and the unit falls. Everything is linked in a chain of causality. So who are you? The words we use and how we use them can create either a positive or negative impression. More relevantly to our discussions here, they will create emotional responses as well as carry unstated but clearly understood beliefs. For example, listen to the following statements and think about the underlying beliefs, attitudes or claims suggested by them. I am a psychic. I am a spiritual medium. In a past life I've been told I was a member of the clergy. She's a witch. I'm a magician. That's not what God wants me to do with my life. Children should be seen and not heard. I am a psychic. Surely this implies something about having an ability, possibly a special gift. 
but we need to remember that the word psychic has meant different things at different times. It can be used to refer to the mind or the soul, and in Jungian terms, generally refers to the psyche, perhaps more correctly, its unconscious content. And to him, psychic energy was a manifestation of mental functions. I'm a spiritual medium implies that the person is a medium through which spirits communicates and therefore one there are spirits of the deceased which b implies the survival of the of an individual self and c these spirits wish to and are able to communicate what about the phrase in a past life i've been told i was a member of the clergy well that implies that there's a belief in the idea of a transmigration of souls the movement of some aspect of the self through time from life to life and b that someone has the ability to see that history she's a witch depending on the context either that means a person practices a magical tradition called witchcraft or wicca which then has a whole range of additional presuppositions b that the person looks like somebody of a stereotype and possibly is a figure of derision i'm a magician does that mean the person is a practitioner of the occult, a holder of arcane knowledge? Or that the person tricks people and pulls rabbits out of hats, makes things appear to vanish, and entertains the children at birthday parties? Uh, they could possibly be all of the above. That's not what God wants me to do with my life. Well, that presupposes a belief that some supernatural deity is making decisions for this person, or, possibly, that this person is abdicating all personal responsibility to a force beyond and outside of themselves. Children should be seen and not heard. Well, this implies that children maybe should have no direct power in the decision-making process. We could go on, but the point being made here is that our language contains the assumptions, beliefs and prejudices we consciously or unconsciously hold on to. None of which is a problem, unless, of course, we unconsciously hold attitudes and beliefs which are in stark contrast to our consciously stated philosophy. Now, Miguel Riez writes about the various unconscious agreements we make as we are growing up. He also suggests how these can cause personal and spiritual blocks, or perhaps, as Jung may have said, neuroses. But during our early life, we began making agreements. Our parents rewarded us when we did what they wanted, and they punished us when they didn't. We also learned behaviours and habits from school, church, and from other adults and children in the playground. The tools of reward and punishment were often emotional and sometimes physical. The impact of other people's opinions and reactions to us became a very strong force in the habits we created. In this process, we created agreements in our mind of who we should be, what we shouldn't be, who we were and who we were not. Over time, we learned to live our life based on agreements in our own mind. We learned to live according to the agreements that came from the opinion of others. In this process of domestication, it turns out that the choices we make and the life we live is more driven by the opinions we learn from others than the one we would choose on our own. Now, Ruiz, in the book, The Four, Four Agreements, spoke a lot about these unconscious agreements that we made. For example, I was in a, a transport cafe a number of years ago and um, sitting there drinking a cup of coffee after a long drive. And a young family came in. Obviously, they'd been on a long drive, too, and they'd, they sought refreshment. 
and the family was a dad and a mom, uh, a toddler of about four, maybe five, and a baby in arms. Now they're all sitting down, relaxing, and the little toddler was given a, a bottle of, well in the UK we call it pop, uh, in America they call it soda. And he was drinking this soda by putting his mouth over the entire bottle and glugging away at it. Of course, it's obvious what was going to happen when he took his mouth away. The pressure built up and the lemonade spilt all over the table in a, a vast soda fountain. I wanted to laugh, but the father's reaction was not one of, amu of amusement. He said very loudly and very sharply, look at what you've done. It's your fault. You always, always, always let us down when we go out. So what kind of agreement is being made there unconsciously by that child? And if that is a pattern of repeated comments, of repeated statements that he's hearing from his parents, he starts to learn about the, his perceived value from the reactions of others. Now, Ruiz's four agreements are those attitudes and beliefs we can consciously accept into our own lives so as to find our own personal power. In outline, these agreements are be impeccable with your word, don't gossip, speak your truth, and know the value of silence. Don't take anything personally. Nothing people do is because of you. It's because of themselves. Another way of putting that, I suppose, is uh, anything people think of you is none of your business. Don't make assumptions. We find courage to ask the questions and express what you really want. Always do your best. Remember that you can always do your best in the now, even if tomorrow you know how to do it better or differently. Now, there's a lot in Rose's work that is inspiring, challenging and potentially life-changing and he is well worth following up on. Humans hardly know what they want, how they want it, or when they want it. Miguel Riez, 1997. Here's a quote from Joseph Campbell. People say that what we're all seeking is meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think that what we're seeking is an experience of being alive, so that our life experiences on a purely physical plane will have resonances with our own innermost being and reality, so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive. Joseph Campbell, 1988. The Hero's Journey. Who or what is a hero? In terms of literature and story, the hero is often the character who not only undertakes a perilous journey or quest, but the one who is changed most by that adventure. In the Harry Potter tales, we may understand that it's Harry Potter who is the hero, since it is he who discovers his power, his heritage, and is engaged in a battle with the evil Lord Voldemort. In that journey, inner questions as to his own heritage are raised. However, we could just as easily see Neville as the ultimate hero, as it is he who in the last battle makes a valiant stand against overwhelming odds. It is he, not Harry, who rallies the almost defeated band of Hogwarts staff and students, having transformed from a weakly also-run kind of character to a fully formed hero with a sword. The hero's journey embodies a set of mythic themes or motifs called by Campbell the monomyth. 
This concept was introduced by Campbell in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, written in 1949. He described the basic narrative pattern as follows. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons to his fellow man. Uh, the cycle, which I say is called The Monomyth, inspired Christopher Vogler in 1985 to produce a Disney Studio memo which described the 12 stages of the hero's monomyth. First, the hero is in the ordinary world. Then there is a call to adventure. The hero first refuses the call, but then is met by a mentor, and together they cross the threshold into the world of adventure, the special world, where they find tests, allies and enemies. In doing so, they approach the innermost cave, the deepest, darkest secrets within the self, and then there is an ordeal followed by a reward. And once that reward is given, the hero makes the journey back home. They are resurrected and changed and reformed by that journey, and they return with the elixir, which could simply be the knowledge of the story, the understanding of their journey, or maybe a magical potion that would help transform the lives of others. Those 12 stages exist within every story that you can possibly think of. Let's take um, Star Wars, for example. The ordinary world, well, Luke Skywalker is a farmhand. The call to adventure, he gets the message from Princess Leia uh, from R2-D2. He refuses the call. It can't possibly be for him. Yet he ventures forth and discovers Obi-Wan Kenobi, who becomes his mentor and his teacher and actually is himself, not what he appeared to be. They cross the threshold, they get into the Millennium Falcon and they fly away to another world. And there are tests and they find allies and enemies. And then Luke Skywalker is taken to a place where he has to confront his darkest self, which he does in the second movie where Yoda tells him to go into the undergrowth and not to take any weapons because what he will find there is only what is inside of him. There is an ordeal, the, the discovery that, that Darth Vader was Luke's father, and then there's a reward, the, the power of the Jedi is bestowed upon Luke Skywalker, and he comes back home to a hero's welcome and leads the rebellion further forward, the elixir being the rebirth of the Jedi Knights. Now, Campbell's work could be seen as to augment or at least make use of Jung's ideas about the collective unconscious and archetypes. Now, strictly speaking, Jungian archetypes refer to an unclear underlying form from which emerge images and motifs like the mother, the child, the trickster, the flood, the fool, and so on. In a mythological and personal sense, these archetypes can be used to represent themes, ideas, and personal motives which form part of human history and human mythtory. See what I did there? Yeah. Jung suggested that these archetypal images and ideas are dynamic, unconscious themes common to all humanity. It is upon these foundations which we build our own experience of life, colouring each with our own unique culture, personality and life events. We start to create our own stories.
and these stories, these these plots, these schema, these narratives that we create for our own life are driven and drawn from our motivations and our beliefs about ourselves. We sometimes see ourselves as the actors within a play following a script that we did not write. Part of the personal empowerment is to start writing your own script, to claim authorship of the play within which you are acting. And then the ultimate is to understand that you are an actor in a play. The word persona comes from the Greek word meaning mask, the mask of the character in a play. You are involved in a cosmic play of cause and effect where there is no person or no ego, just the illusion of self which takes you through the journey of life. You may start to wonder if there is no bigger purpose, then what's the point? As some philosophers have suggested, life could be like pushing a boulder up a hill, only to let it roll down again. Actually, the point is in pushing the boulder, not getting to the top of the hill. And each moment that you push the boulder or let it slip back is part and parcel of the cause and effect of the cosmic play that you are involved in. You can write your own story as to how you choose to push the boulder or whether you just choose to sit in its shadow and watch the world go by. So, some questions for you to reflect upon. Where are you within your own hero's journey? Have you just started it? Have you met your mentors? Are you in some kind of challenge at the moment? Have you got the elixir and are you going back transformed into a, another phase of your life? Are you at different points in, of that journey in different aspects of your life? Your work life, your relationships, your family life. Where are you on that journey? What unconscious agreements have you made from your experiences and your journey so far? Are you still hearing the voice of the parents that put you down, of the teachers that criticised you, of the friends that bullied you? As we've spoken about before, if that is the case, you are actually living out their expectations and their script for yourself. Here's another thing to think about. What words would you use to describe you? And what are the beliefs and attitudes that underpin the meaning of those words? As we explored earlier, if I say that I am a medium, a psychic medium, then implies a belief in psychic abilities and the belief in communication with spirits. What words do you use consistently that define you and what beliefs underline them? I am a good mother. What belief is there? And if that's an empowering belief, fantastic, because if you're a good mother and you believe you are, you probably are. What if you say to yourself, I am a bad friend. I am a poor learner. I am just unlucky. All of these phrases have underlying ideas and beliefs and attitudes, which you may find interesting to explore. And the last thing for today. Are you willing to think about adopting 
who has his four agreements. Being impeccable with your word, not taking anything personally, not making assumptions, and always doing your best. Are you willing to make new agreements with yourself based upon a code of ethics you aspire to? That, for me, is when you start to write your own story. Until next time. Hey, hey.